Welcome to Bread. Romans has been described as the fullest, plainest, and grandest statement of the gospel in the New Testament. It's why we've entitled the series, The Complete Works of God. In Romans, we have the Christian manifesto in all its breadth. Ultimately, it's a manifesto to the freedom Jesus has come to bring. So that's what we'll be going for, freedom for everyone. Thank you, Jesus, that you are here with us. Thank you that you are our peace, you bring us peace, and that your presence transforms us in incredible ways. Would you continue to be at work this morning, Holy Spirit, um, in everything that I say and that we speak about now. In Jesus' name, amen. Do have a seat. Um, Hello, if we haven't met, uh, my name is Hannah and I lead Bread with Ed. Um, I always appreciate uh, a little inside joke for the Brits in America. If you don't know Americans in America, uh, Brits walk around and are regularly greeted with people asking us what part of Australia we are from, Um, which is, of course, all the Brits' fault um, if we we track it all back. But uh, just just to explain that for you, um, I... One of my main quirks in life is that I love a little bit of date precision. I've often found that God speaks to me in weird ways when I discover about weird anniversaries on weird, at weird times. And I was overjoyed this morning when I went back, um, not this morning, earlier this week, when I went back um, through uh, old talks, knowing that I'd spoken on this passage before, to discover that I spoke on this passage exactly three years ago. And do you know what also is happening exactly three years ago? Anyone else made this, this connection? Tomorrow, yeah, Joe has, because he agreed with me with it. Um, tomorrow will be three years to the day since uh, Governor Newsom's stay-at-home order. Can you believe that? Three years. Um, and, and this it was a passage that I spoke on. Annoyingly, uh, the talk doesn't really translate very well, so I don't get to regurgitate much. I had to work on a whole new talk, um, which was a bummer. Um, But could I encourage you just to think back to that moment with me? Because it was before all of the rest of the 2020 of the thing. It was before the racial reckoning over the summer. And I think what we saw would be this incredible movement that then got very divided. Um, It was before the 2020 election, good grief. It was before, in fact, uh, I certainly experienced any controversy over wearing masks. Um, It was before anything to do with uh, who gets the right to tell who what vaccine they should put in their body. It was before I ever heard a church claiming their religious freedom trumps any public health concerns and and the rights to meet in person. And it was uh, before Gal Gadot's uh, awful Imagine thing, which I'm pretty sure historians will mark as the precise moment that everything went wrong. But um, I, it was dreadful, wasn't it? Um, I don't actually know if I am exposing quite a large amount of my naivety and my privilege when I, um, I'm even trying to draw you back to this sort of early moment. I may well be, but let me just try and sort of explain what that moment meant for me, because I know that there was a lot of fear. You know, in those first few days, those first couple of weeks when we were all just like, what is happening? What is going to happen? What are we doing? There was a lot of fear 
not just obviously about our health and the health of the vulnerable and the health of our families, but also around just finances and job security and how long is this going to last. Um, but within that, there was also this very powerful and pervasive feeling of togetherness. And it wasn't just about like Joey Exotic and banana bread and you know, all those old things. And, but it was, it was something kind of more powerful. I don't know, did your neighborhoods bang pots? Did your communities do? Our, our school community, which is notoriously divided between, between gentrifiers and gentrified, did this incredible thing of coming together to help um, essential workers with their kids, looking after their kids and shared things. Loads of people from this community volunteered to do shopping for the elderly and the immunocompromised, just standing there. Do you remember those lines outside supermarkets to just get food? And there was just something about what we saw on our screens of the whole thing that we were doing together, of the same things we were experiencing of, you know, <laughs> taking work zooms in our underpants and hiding from our children in closets for the parents among us. Rereading that sermon this week gave me a lot to reflect on of just the beat of time that it was where it felt like we could imagine a togetherness. We could imagine this sort of sense of putting our own needs and demands aside just for that moment and, and being like, of course I'll stay home to keep people safe, to keep people alive. Even people I don't know, of course I will do that. I know it all went wrong. Because of course nothing stays very simple for humanity for very long, does it? Which is a lovely neat transition to Romans. So it's a letter that Paul wrote about 25 years um, after Jesus was re resurrected to a church racked with division after, as Ed and Raoul have been teaching us, the Jewish Christians who had been expelled from Rome about, um, probably about 10 years prior to this, had come back and re they'd returned to find that the Gentile church was not following any of the law that they had been sort of instituting in the church before they left. And the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians were at deadlock over how to resolve this. I'm speaking from chapter 12 today. Uh, maybe some of the most famous verses in the Bible, maybe some of our favorite memory verses. You may know it well. It starts, therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Offer your whole selves as a living sacrifice. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it says a lot more after that, which we'll get onto in a second. But in terms of the letter and its construction, what I just want us to know in this moment is that this, this exact verse, that exact verse in, in Paul's, what he was writing, uh, marks an important turning point for him. Eleven chapters previously, or rather 7,000 words of unchaptered uh, letter writing previously, because of course there weren't chapters then, comprise dense and elaborate wording that can be summarized as follows. We are all, Jew and Gentile alike, hopelessly broken before God. The law hadn't fixed the previously unfixable problem of the human heart, but now Jesus has dealt with it, has paid for it, and we are justified now, declared righteous now, by him and him alone. And we have been given a new status. We are this new faith-based, multi-ethnic family of Abraham, a new humanity, no longer driven to our fleshlight destruction, but a whole new creation by his spirit, who intercedes for us, who brings us back to Jesus. 
and to this incredible love that we cannot be separated from, not by death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers can separate us from this love. And then we get to Romans 12, which Jonathan is going to come and read. Shall I hold this for you? Um, I'm going to be reading uh, from the NIV version and the NASB per um, my own personal studies. I think the NASB version does a better job at um, interpreting the Greek in, in verses 16 through 18. He has special permission to go from a different version. I asked before, so yeah. Um, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, though many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, then do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. And this is from the NSV version, which I think does better justice to the Greek. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty, which is arrogant in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, all people. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And finally, do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do we get an amen? Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, so, as I mentioned, um, chapter 12 marks a turn of page in this letter that Paul has written. He is done explaining how the gospel works now. 
and he's paying his attention to what it means. If these Jewish and Gentile believers alike, all made righteous by Jesus, are called to come together as a church and receive his spirit together, they would have had the same glaring question as we have today over how any of this is possible. It's quite a confrontational passage, isn't it, that one? How any of this is possible when we are like what we are like, from different ethnic, socioeconomic, theological, political, and cultural places. So this passage is all about the how. Um, so for one thing, we accept that all of our differences are necessary. From verses four, five, and six, we get this picture of the church being a body, which is a metaphor that Paul uses a few times in different letters. Different people, different gifting, though many, forming one body. And each member belongs to all the others. Which is quite a thought, isn't it, as we sit here together? We belong to each other. Having just finished a series on the gifts from Ephesians 4, um, I was quite interested in comparing what Paul says here with what he says there, um, as well as the other lists on spiritual gifts and um, roles in 1 Corinthians 12. He's not actually completely consistent in these lists in terms of what the gifts specifically are, but in all three letters, he is unequivocal. The purpose of receiving gifts is not for ourselves at all. All three passages are explicitly clear. The point of knowing our calling and exercising our gift is for the body, to build it up. And it is always about unity. Verse 16, which is the one that uh, Jonathan um, translated from the NASB. Be of the same mind as one another. Live in harmony with one another is um, what the NIV says. I agree with him on that. This, is, of course, does not mean being of the same mind about everything. This is not about conformity. Paul is crystal clear, otherwise we would all be the same part of the body. Just be a big body of hands. But being of the same mind, the harmony is about how we view ourselves, like he says, not more highly than we ought, motivated by this peace and unity thing this body that we're called to be a part of. And what's also very interesting in terms of the, what the three passages emphasize is the love thing. Um, so you probably know 1 Corinthians 13 because it's read at every single wedding you've ever been to. But right after the Corinthians 12 passage where he does the, the parts of the body, the spiritual gifts, and then he does the, the gifts thing very similar to the Ephesians calling thing, um, is this beautiful prose about love. <clears throat> so this is from uh, 1 Corinthians 13. Um, it's patient. It's kind. It's not envious or boastful or proud or dishonoring. Uh, Paul goes a lot further than fact and says that we can follow all of the rules, have all of the faith, serve incessantly. We can hear the Spirit in the most profound ways and we can give all of our money away but if we don't have love in our communities, it is all for nothing. We're only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. So the version from our passage is, uh, describes love in the following ways. It says it must be sincere and without hypocrisy. 
And since sincere love cannot tolerate anything which might hurt or damage the object of our love, love must hate what is evil. This is the only time that that word is used in the whole of the New Testament. It means to strongly abhor anything which will hurt the ones we love. It also says love is discerning, devoted, affectionate, honoring, enthusiastic, patient, generous, hospitable, peaceful, humble, and empathetic. Love can never stand aloof with other people's joys or pains. It celebrates with those who celebrate. It weeps with those who weep. <clears throat> Towards the end of last year, Ed and I both had a sense of God speaking to us sort of a, as a, around a call for bread as a community to mature, to grow up a bit, to take one foot out of whatever other boat our foot may be in and put them both in the Jesus one, and to ask ourselves quite seriously what that might mean. And within that, I, had a, I felt very specifically, um, repeatedly, that God was um, encouraging me to teach about conflict. Um, I've, actually, my last sermon was about that as well, and we, I taught a workshop on the, at the staff retreat on it, and um, brought it into the dating course as often as I could. Basically, just conflict is, is my theme. It has also transpired that a very high proportion of our leadership and pastoral work over the last few months has been spent on conflict and resolving conflict, our own and among other people, which really is a massive bummer because I did think God was just telling me to teach about it. <laughs> but the older and wiser I get, and certainly the longer I am involved in church leadership, I realize the only way that we can love the way that we are instructed to love is when we accept the inevitability of conflict, when we accept that nothing with humanity stays unmessy for very long. The idea that we can meaningfully get on this unity and diversity, Bible-believing, intelligent, thoughtful, spirit-filled gospel train and not expect high levels of disagreement within this body and upset within this body over how we treat each other, how we speak to each other, not to mention what we disagree on about what the Bible says. It's not, we're not going to go very far. And what's very interesting, what has spoken to me profoundly this week, do not conform to the patterns of this world. It's a gospel cry. We've probably heard it applied to so many things, right? All manner of situations. All manner of what it is to be a Christian in the world. But here, Paul was specifically writing about the worldly patterns of dealing with those that we do not agree with. This incredible Jesus-modeled love is not just for those that we naturally love, the ones among us that we find it very easy to love, the ones we agree with. This love is, just not, is not just a passive, like, feelings-led thing. This is a ruthless commitment to the love that Christ modeled, not thinking of ourselves too highly. And if it's possible, from verse 18, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone.
as far as it depends on you, it means seeing disunity as your problem, being quick to apologize, ready with the olive branch, comfortable with the view from the lowly position that we're called to put ourselves in. And I genuinely believe that this also means being willing to share what has hurt us with the people that have hurt us. Obviously with maturity and gentleness. To be ruthless with ourselves about how we handle it when we disagree. To be led by love and please know that I'm absolutely <laughs> preaching to myself. And it's just been a very hard talk to sit with and look in the mirror about this week for me. Because of course, this gets even harder. As Jesus said with shattering clarity, uh, that this love is not just for the Lord our God and our neighbor anymore, like the old precept taught. It's not just for the ones that we naturally love. It's not even just for the ones that we disagree with in church. It's for our enemies too. So Paul quotes from Proverbs 25 here in his exhortation to give your enemy what he needs. He says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Uh, if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. So I'll just a quick note about the burning coals on his head bit because uh, I always like to go there when it sounds a bit uh, rothy and hellfiery, um, particularly because it sounds incredibly incongruous with everything else that, we've, that Paul has just been writing about, <clears throat> about how we're supposed to treat everyone. It's not very blessy, is it, uh, being motivated by the scalding of the scalp of somebody else? enemy or friend alike. Um, so actually, theologians, scholars, and historians have limited understanding of any ancient practice um, to do with heaping coals on anyone's head. Um, some think that it might be to do with a sort of outward display of penitence, like the sackcloth and, sackcloth and ashes thing. Um, another theory is that it refers to a time when keeping your uh, hearth alive in your home is of vital importance to your family's comfort, and you might go into town to uh, ask neighbors, townsmen, uh, if you could take some burning embers from their coal, uh, from their fire if yours had gone out. It was thought that you would go out with a bucket if you were going to do this, and you'd, if it was heavy, you'd carry it on your head. There isn't agreement on what this meant um, in scholarly circles, but from, for us, what's important here is to know that what the command was. Give your enemy something to drink, feed him, love him. Acts of love do have a habit of forcing us to confront our feelings of our enemy, do, it, do they not? Um, Ed told a story a couple of weeks ago, um, I think with a different point, um, but yeah, it's always easier to <laughs> use a story of his failure than my own, uh, so I will. Um, he was told a story about him running down Los Feliz Boulevard, I don't know if you hear for it, and uh, he uh, stepped onto the crosswork when it was his turn to cross and a car nearly hit him. And he did the, uh, what I believe is the universal body language gesture of shaming another person. He did the kind of thing, which is almost but not quite as bad as this. Um, which, to be honest, I would far rather have an expletive or a long horn honk or a middle finger raise at me than a, than a slow head shake, good grief. Um, but the guy in the car, as opposed to sort of react to as him, just kind of went and blew him a kiss. He heaped, he heaped hot coals on his head. He made Ed be confronted with uh, the aggressor, and I mean, he wasn't really, he'd been completely glib, wasn't he? This is not a good example of this. 
And of course, traffic aggressors aren't really our enemies, are they? Are they? But can you ask yourself now who your enemy is? We've all got them. Is it someone who treated you really badly, unfairly? Is it an ex? Is it an ex's new partner? Is it someone who damaged you or has damaged the people that you feel aligned with? Is it a political opponent? To not conform to the patterns of this world means renewing our minds against the way our minds even work. Being threatened or attacked causes kind of like an override in the brain from using the prefrontal bit of our brain, the regulated, thoughtful, social, compassionate, loving part, without having any conscious knowledge of this whatsoever, we go to the part of the brain that is only motivated by our survival, which has no need for the capacity of other because it is only job is to keep us alive when we're under threat. It's why such gross things come out of your mouth and my mouth when we feel hurt and attacked. It's why hurt people hurt people. So as the 2024 election cycle starts to ramp, as the decibels of noise in our echo chambers chime away, let's just remember that this is our mandate as the people of God to love, to love and provide food and drink for our enemy even when we are being persecuted. And let's just be honest, for the vast majority of us in this room, we have never experienced anything like being persecuted. But it doesn't stop us taking the sides of those, does it? To overcome evil with good, because this is what love does. Without the spirit of Jesus alive in us, the only way that we can work together uh, to form groups in any way is with the worldly methods, the religious rules, the thought conformity, the cancelling. But with Jesus, something else entirely is possible. And this is what Paul was talking about in these magical verses at the beginning. So let us go back there now. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Um, the phrase living sacrifice, as well as other language used, um, offer, holy, pleasing and perfect, would have clearly evoked um, temple animal sacrifice to uh, the original listeners, Jewish, Greek and Roman alike. The word used for sacrifice in the Greek is actually killing, so Paul is being deliberately paradoxical when he calls us to be a living killing. The blood has already been shed, the killing has already been done in what Jesus has done, but we are made alive, and we are made alive again with him. But the killing part is never done. D.L. Moody famously said about this passage that the problem with being a living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar. The dying to ourselves, letting him be in charge, 
surrendering our rights, giving up our demands, our lists, and saying, over to you, Jesus. Is there anything more offensive to our culture? Is there anything more antithetical to the mores and paradigms of 21st century Western life than saying, Jesus, I give you everything? Than saying, I trust you more than I trust me? It is a process and we have to choose it daily, sometimes many times a day. We say quite often here that you're here on your own terms. It's a phrase that um, we got from St. Mary's where both Ed and I um, came back to faith after stepping away for it for a while. Not together, we didn't know each other at the time. Um, you're here on your own terms. It m may in fact sound, because it is indeed entirely incongruous with what we're speaking about this morning, about being a living sacrifice. And from time to time, people raise it, they object to it. What are you talking about? We're not here on our own terms, we're here on Jesus' terms. If we really believe any of this, we're here for his life, not ours, for his church, his call, his ways. Why do you keep saying that? But look what comes first, even here in this passage, and it was exactly what Jordan sensed during the worship as well. I found it very powerful. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, which should be more accurately translated as mercies. His many and varied mercies of his fixed attitude of mercy, of grace, of love towards us. The grace always comes first and it always demands that you get to choose. I have absolutely no doubt that some people arrive here totally ready for the full on living sacrifice message. But we're always gonna go after those who aren't. To be honest, we could do this another way. We're better motivational speakers, probably. Maybe if we were a little hipper. <laughs> Once <laughs> in Los Feliz, uh, a guy bounded over to Ed and I and said he'd really enjoyed the service. It had really blown him away. And particularly because neither of us were trying in any way to be hip. <laughs> Bit of an ego check for us all. <laughs> and he never came back either, for goodness sake. There's nothing else that we're supposed to build this on. There's no other way of enticing you into this body than grace. The mercy always comes first. The grace always comes first. And if where you are this, this morning is, is, I don't know, why am I here? What am I doing here? What's this for? I don't know anything about this Jesus thing. I experienced something kind of moving in the worship. I'm not ready for this talk. The grace is for you. If you haven't received it, it's coming after you. It always will be. In a minute, we're going to open ourselves to the Spirit again, and that's definitely what he's trying to show you. So I encourage you to, to ask for more of it. But just a quick, another couple of things before we do that. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It is astonishing, actually, how scientifically accurate this verse has turned out to be. Even as lately as the last 30 years, this is very, very new science. 
Neuroplasticity, as I'm sure you know, refers to the brain's ability to change itself based on the input and output that it continues to work with. Um, can we have the video? Oh, we've got the video already. Wonderful. So if you um, look at the image, thoughts, beliefs, and feelings that are generated inside our brains based on the pathways that they use. And established pathways represent our established ways of thinking, believing, and feeling. And every time we think and feel in the same ways, we reinforce that pathway. But if we are caused to think, feel, or do something differently, we start a new pathway. And if we keep using this new pathway, this new way of thinking, feeling, or doing becomes automatic. In the meantime, the old pathway gets less, uh, gets less and less use, so it weakens. So our brain's structures actually change based on the new input they receive. I love how science and faith aren't actually at war. The physical and the spiritual are um, working towards the same things, and it always blows my mind. Be transformed is the same word in Matthew and Mark uh, that's used describing Jesus' transfiguration, metamorpho. It implies both a sense of the completeness of change, but also the miraculousness of that change. And the verb here is passive. And that's the point. Be transformed by the one who transforms. The only one who has the power to do that. The verb renewing in the Greek is present continual, making new day by day. Read your Bible, recite it, meditate on the stories of Jesus, the life he lived, the love he loved. There is work for us to do. This is a both and thing. This is the Spirit's work to do and ours. And it always starts with his mercies. This is what we receive and what we choose in how we live and what we do with our time and our bodies, and who we choose to receive. Because, of course, the Spirit is a person. Um, if you're new here, or if um, the Holy Spirit stuff is historically a bit scary and weird for you, understand why. Um, I, it's, common for representations and ways he's discussed to, to um, people to experience something quite scary. Um, we take our model of this thing, the way that we pray, the way that we believe he works, and we've seen him work from um, Wimbo, which was originally kind of, um, he was a guy who was transformed originally by the Jesus movement, just down the road in Anaheim. Um, and it's very much centered around if you come forward for prayer, it's not the person, nobody's gonna like push you over, nobody, the, the, the goal of the prayer, the way that we train all of our team is to say, your job is to get out of the way. It's not about you, it's not about your prayers, it's about what the Holy Spirit's doing. So we, you'll stand to your people will just repeat, I bless what you're doing, Holy Spirit, because there is power in this thing, in standing here and agreeing with this thing. I, un I understand entirely if this is very scary for you, but I would encourage you this week and every week to get involved in it because it is the spirit who does these things. It is the spirit who transforms. And he is a person. And he wants to know you. And of course, if you're a Christian, we've got him. We all know this. The Holy Spirit's at work for all of us. But there is something powerful in coming here and agreeing together. He is a gentleman and he, in, he responds to invitation. So in a minute, what we're going to do is we're going to stand and if you're up for this, you don't have to. Nobody will ever force you. You're here on your own terms. Um, 
we're going to stand and we're going to open ourselves and we're going to say, come Holy Spirit. Talbot, do you want to come up? I'm just going to go back to Romans 8, which is what Raoul spoke on last week, just to remind ourselves. He helps us in our weakness. For when we do not know what to pray as we should, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He testifies that we are God's children. He gives life. The one who raised Jesus from the dead is alive in you. Do you want to stand?